looking a little tan from his time away. Not really, but I'm trying to give you some credit. Yeah. Welcome to NOID. If you're visiting with us, please let us know with uh, just filling out that connection card in the, in the chair in front of you. It just says, scan me. And that's the thing that you scan, just to let us know that you're here. And maybe we can grab a coffee or, or a lunch uh, during the week. Um, but if you are visiting, welcome. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Acts chapter 25. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have them in the chair underneath the chair in front of you. Please take that one if you don't have one at home, with the only stipulation that re you read it. We want you to read the Word of God, to know who God is as He has shown Himself in His Word. It's why we ask you to open your Bibles with us so that you know that we aren't coming up with this off the top of our heads. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. It is the most precious thing uh, that is available to us. So Acts chapter 25, and as you turn there, uh, Oscar Wilde once said it this way, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. The quote actually keeps going, which was a reminder to me because it's amazing how many times we don't do the whole quote, that mediocrity can pay to greatness, which I thought was kind of mean, but, you know, whatever. But for the most part, it's true. But when you think about children, when you think of sons and daughters and how they grow up, they want to be like their dads for the most part. There is that period of time in a son's life where they think that their dad is Superman. Unfortunately, that ends really quick um, in life. Maybe not. Sometimes you keep calling them. I called my dad this morning asking for some advice on some things. Or maybe it's someone else who is in your life, who has been in your life, that you would look to and point to and desire to be like, whoever it may be, but what about that desire for someone to imitate you? Have you ever thought that way? To live in such a way that you want other people to follow you? We talked about this in a class I was teaching earlier this week about imitating, as Paul talks about this, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? One of the greatest uh, humbling, one of the greatest humbling sentences I can read in the Bible. But have you ever thought about that? Do you look at someone in your life and wish and hope that they would just be like you? And Paul did. But there's a reason for it. There's a foundation for it. It wasn't about wanting someone to be a carbon copy of him. He didn't want a, a million different apostles, Pauls, walking around this earth. I don't want any more than one Nathan Clausen in this world, for your sake, really. Paul had an idea of how he wanted others to be just like him. And that desire comes from that foundation of who he is and who he is in Christ. So we're going to be reading from Acts 25, verse 13. So the big numbers are the verses, and the little numbers are the verses. The word of the Lord says this. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before him, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when, he, when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders and the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. 
I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, I made no delay, but on the next day, I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had uh, certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserts to be alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate this question, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered into the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to him, uh, to my Lord, about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you and you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I might have something to write. But it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Verse chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hands and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today. Against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because of your familiar, familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest part, party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain. As they earnestly worship night and day, and for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it a thought incredible by any of you that God raised the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in oppose, imposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. And I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death... I cast my vote against them, and I punished them, often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blasphemy, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In, in verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority of the, and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me, those who journeyed with me. 
And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open the eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the regions of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things and to whom I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free. If, it had not, if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Awesome God, we thank you for the chance we have to continue to worship you and to make much of you. And Lord, there's no possible way that I can do this on my own, so will you make this turn out well? Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified, and I want to speak of you and praise you and praise your name. And Lord, so by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Lord, please use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. So that's a long passage. You know what the wonderful thing about Acts is that it's kind of trying to wrap up everything that's happening. So there's a lot of repetition that's happening, but at the same time, there's lots of things that we need to learn, maybe even relearn. 
It's like we sometimes get sick of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You know, we could probably say that backwards if you grew up in Awana like I did, in King James and NIV. But it's a truth that is so rich. And the same is here. And that's why Paul keeps using his testimony. It's a thing for us to remember. And here in, verses, in chapter 25, in verses 13 to 27, we see the introductions with Festus and Agrippa. And Festus gives a quick overview of what has happened so far. Remember, this whole predicament is because uh, Felix procrastinated the whole time. Now he kind of passed the buck to Festus. Now who, he's the one that has to deal with it. Like, this is two years, right? In verses 13 to 15, we are introduced to two people, King Agrippa and Bernice who arrived to welcome this new governor of Judea, Festus. They spent many days together talking and seeing how things are going and probably talking about whose yacht was bigger than the others. I don't know. But it was one of those official meetings that they got together. And Festus recounts what has happened and why he's left with this guy named Paul. But we have to ask ourselves this question, who is Agrippa and Bernice? Because it's important in the context, especially of what Paul begins to proclaim. Agrippa was the last ruler of the Herodian line. His father was Agrippa I. He was the man that literally exploded with worms because he was prideful before a holy God. His grandfather was Herod the Great. He went around killing babies because he was afraid of the king of kings and lord of lords. So not exactly the best lineage. Not really something to be proud of but explains a lot of his pomp that he has. He was also a friend of Nero. And something that's interesting, as a reminder from this time, is God's providential care continues to work, right? We talked about this last week, I think it was, with King Nero. Nero was on power as Caesar for five years. Only half of that was good. The rest of it, he was a nutcase. And eventually he kills himself. And you see how God orchestrates all these things as Paul heads to Rome for Nero, of all people, to hear his testimony. Now, Bernice was actually Agrippa's sister, which is interesting because when you're reading this, you're like, oh, they must be married or something. Which brings me up to the main problem of this whole situation. Historically speaking, we think that they were in an insidious relationship this whole time. Uh, Bernice was divorced twice and was currently living with her brother. Not exactly another great example. All of that to said, imagine that this is all in the backdrop of what they are about to hear from the Apostle Paul about who God is. This is, a, this is the type of man that Paul desires to strongly be just like him. And this is a compromised couple that would have hit hard with the truths of Paul's testimony. And they, their lives show that they are completely and utterly separated from a holy God. They are an extreme example that no one seeks after righteousness, no one. And when we look at them, we should also see our desperate need of a Savior without Jesus Christ. So Festus rehashes the events 
maybe making things out to be harder than they really were because it really wasn't all of Jerusalem and every Jew in every place. And yet again, we see that Paul has been received uh, charges that are not worthy of being killed over. And everybody sees this. There's not one person that doesn't see that who is in authority at this time. This isn't just an argument, though, between a few Jewish people over a doctrinal thing. This is over the loyalty to the true king, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the long-awaited promised Messiah. If you were to summarize this whole argument behind all of what is happening, it is this. Did Jesus rise from the dead? That's the argument. That's the question. This is a foundational question to the Christian faith. Essentially, we see this in 1 Corinthians verse 15. If you deny that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you are not a Christian. I will say that right now. It is a fundamental teaching of the Christian faith. If you believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead, well, A, you can't take communion, but B, you're not saved. You are not part of Christ. It was unbelief that is shown uh, this argument throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, as we see the reflection of the hearts of the Jews and the Gentiles and even people today. Because to accept that Jesus rose from the dead means that everything that Jesus said is true. So the easiest way to deny that Jesus is who Jesus says he is is to say he didn't rise from the dead. But Jesus did rise from the dead. All evidence points to it. Every part of the Bible talks about it. In fact, Jesus, the, not Jesus, the Bible, the Old Testament prophesied of it. And Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that we see in the Old Testament. But this is what we remember as we take communion. And Festus, he's at a loss of how to investigate what has happened. Why is he before Caesar? Caesar probably would ask. Why is this guy here? I don't even have a letter of why he's here. You can't send someone to your boss without an explanation as to why that person is standing before your boss. It doesn't really look well on you. So with the pomp, as we see in verses 23 to 27, and the glamour that a King Agrippa could not resist, remember, this is just to hear what Paul's story is, right? But we see God's providence even in this. As God gathers not just King Agrippa and Bernice and Festus, but all of the important people of the city, all of the military tribunals, all of those hundreds of people, all in this one room for Paul to preach the gospel. And what an amazing thing. Paul has a captive audience to uh, tell other people about who God is and what God has done. This isn't anything like rocket science. All Paul does, all Paul does, is tell other people about what God has done in his own life. In our time, we call that a testimony. He's telling his story of all that God has done, of all who he was before God did anything in his life. But we see in verses 1 to 8 what Paul is really on trial for as Agrippa and Bernice make their way and hear this. 
We see that there's an insidious relationship that is between those two. But Paul was the one here who is actively working against God as he raged against the bride of Christ. And even though he thought he was okay, he was just as much of a rebel towards God as Agrippa and Bernice were without Jesus Christ. And what Paul wants to point to, to those who are listening into this room, that even he as a good Jew needed Jesus. That even you as a good person who might help a hundred people a day cross the street, who donates a ton of food to the food bank, who may volunteer at the soup kitchen, you still need Jesus. So Paul is given permission with his classic orator skills, and he begins to address those who are in the room. And he starts with this in verse 4 to 5. He points to his life. My manner of life from my youth, he says, from my young age, spent from the beginning among all my own nation and in Jerusalem. My whole life, he says, is known by all the Jews. If you just ask them, they will tell you, he says. I lived perfectly but I was still found wanting. So Paul proclaims, boldly proclaims the reason for why he is on trial. It's not about how he lived, because he lived as a perfect Pharisee, because he lived according to the strictest of the law, but it's because of the hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. And this is a fantastic statement. Because what is the promise? It is the long-awaited Messiah who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a sinless life, who fulfills all that God's promise in the Old Testament, who lived and died on the Roman cross, who was Israel's hope that God would save his people and that God would raise the dead. And what Paul is pointing out is that he was on trial for testifying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope that the Old Testament pointed to. And Paul isn't on trial because he was a good Jew, but because he was proclaiming the true Messiah. In his old life, Paul was clearly a man who was completely and utterly against Jesus. We call this total depravity. If you were going to sum it all up in a doctrinal two words. Which is what we all are without Christ. He spent his whole life trying to snuff out the believers of Jesus. We see this in Acts 8, all the way to Acts 8, once when Stephen is stoned. He says, and Saul approved his execution, speaking of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And then verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's who Paul was. That's how dedicated he was to what he believed. And what Paul will say shortly is he was still wrong. It doesn't matter how committed you are to your beliefs if they're wrong. Without Jesus Christ, you still are separated from a holy God. And it's because of this hope that is rooted in Jesus being the fulfillment of all the Old Testament that he is being accused. In fact, what he is saying is that he is the one who is actually being the faithful one. He's the one who's faithfully following Jesus, not these other people. There is only one kingdom, one people of God, and one gospel, and the foundation of that belief is in Jesus Christ and who he says he is. If you deny Jesus, you're not part of the kingdom. 
In Galatians 3 says this, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And this is where the outcome of that question in verse 8 comes. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raised the dead? It's a fantastic question. Because starting from Genesis 1-1, God has always been in the business of bringing life from the dead and life from nothing. And the Jews know that. You even see it again in Hebrews 11, verse 3. Look through the Old Testament and the New Testament and see the many examples of God bringing what was dead to life or bringing life where there was no life. Why in the world, Paul is saying, is it so hard to think that God can do this if he has already done this? When Jesus was raised from the dead, the power of God was clearly and unbelievably shown. And for you and me, as Romans 6, 5 says, for if we have been united with him in his death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in his resurrection like his. For all who believe will share in that resurrection. So what kind of hope does this simple question bring to all those who are in Christ? What amazing hope does it bring? This brings us a hope, a sure hope of eternity. As you think about this hope, let me ask you this question. How does it or should it permeate every part of your life today as you leave this place? Regardless of how your week has been, if you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you have a hope that can never be taken away. In whatever circumstance that you may live, in whatever happened this week, whatever joy or whatever heights or low, whatever it may be, you have a hope that can never be taken away because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And what Paul is on trial for is for believing in and being faithful to God. And what he moves to is, that, is what faith in Jesus has done to his status. He was dead in his trespasses, in his sin. And even though he was a top-notch Jew himself, he was still going to hell without Jesus Christ. Philippians 3, 4-6 says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, meaning in like who, he, who you are as a person, I have more, he says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul comes and he says, and right here in this part, he says, look, look at what I was. But now he will say, but look at what Jesus has done. The Messiah who died and rose from the dead. So in Chapter 26, verses 9 to 23, we see what Jesus has done to Paul. And in this part, we see it broken up into three sections. And I think it's good to think about this. Pastor Chris talked about this a while ago on what it means to have a testimony. And now Paul reiterates it for us again today. And it's a good lesson. Because we need to be ready in all seasons in order to testify of who God is. And that starts with knowing our own story of what God has done. And this is what Paul does. He breaks it up. 
into three parts. What Paul was like, what changed, and what Paul is now. It's pretty simple, right? So in verses 9 to 11, he begins to reiterate what he was like. And Paul was actively working against God. Before Jesus, Paul was living as he says in Romans 3, verse 10, no one is righteous, no, not one. Meaning that, as Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Coming from Psalm along with Isaiah 64, which says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like a wind take us away. And what, and, and what, and what Paul wants is something to be very clear. Even though he was living in accordance to every aspect of the law, even though on the outside it looked like he was doing a good job, maybe he wore the best suits, I don't know. He was the best of the best. He was still opposing the name of Jesus at every point of his life. And even though he thought he was being faithful to God, he was being disobedient and in sin. He was... He was so part of this life that he was active in putting his voice to death for the death penalty of anyone who was found to be a follower of Jesus. He looked at the local synagogues and he tried to get them to speak against God by blaspheming them, by blaspheming God, sorry. He did this with a raging fury against them. And Paul's intentions were to persecute and destroy, but the risen Christ had another plan. Can you talk about where you were at in your life before God grabbed hold of you? What was your life like before Jesus grabbed hold of your life? It's an important part to testify of Jesus Christ. Now, granted, not many of us were the ones who were like the chief persecutors of the early church. Right? And if you were like me, your testimony is probably, quote-unquote, incredibly boring. But there was still a, what was your life before? And what is your life now? And it still testifies equally of the greatness and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so in verses 12 to 18, he comes, he says, what does what God Paul has done to Paul? And in verse 12, Paul journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. He was full on, jumped full feet into this water, and he is being sent by the chief priest to, on a mission to snuff out the church. But it was on this journey that showed the true state of his heart. And Jesus does something miraculous. Clearly, we see God's initiative in this plan. God takes the first step in drawing Paul and anyone else to himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. And it was on this trip, as we see in verse 13, that Paul says, A light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and all those who journeyed with me. Everyone saw it. And he hears this voice in verse 14. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Which brings up a question I had because I had no idea what goads were. Yeah, I thought it was something that I probably can't talk about right now. And you can use your imagination. And I was wrong. So I had to look it up. <laughs> Because I'm a city slicker, and I have no idea what they do in the country. 
It's a pointing instrument that is used to prod uh, in something of a, something or someone, in this case, in the state of motion. It's usually used for livestock and animals. So when Jesus says this to Paul, he is saying that Paul has been reacting against Jesus' lordship in a way that was causing Paul harm. Which is interesting, because I'm not going to lie, I was raised in a way that would interpret that passage completely different. Which is why you need to open the Bible yourself and read it. Paul doesn't change his alliance like some sort of political game. This isn't a new or better or clearer revelation of God. God is converting Paul from a life that was constantly against him to a membership in the people of God by faith in Jesus Christ. No longer is he working against God. No longer is he constantly up against the wall, as we would say. Now he is walking with Jesus. No one who rejects the Messiah is a faithful member of the covenant, if that be the old covenant or the new. And God convicts Paul of sin, and it's then he realizes the futility of his ways. And this is when repentance begins to happen. Realizing that we have been working against Jesus, that we have sinned against God. And here's something I was talking with my wife about. Actually, I'm pretty sure they're talking about it today in Sunday school. See, we often think repentance is a feeling. We're like, oh, it's, you know, it's just something like, oh, I need to make sure I feel better before God. Repentance is an action. It it's, it's, it's literally means to turn away. So I can say sorry to God all day long for the images or the videos I look at on my computer. But if I am continuing to look at those pictures and videos on my computer, I am not repenting. That's an example. I can say sorry to God all day long if I'm going 60 kilometers down Cheapside. But if I continue to go 60 kilometers down Cheapside, I'm still not repenting. Repentance is an action. It means turn away from your old life and walk towards Christ. And it can only be done by a heart that has first been changed. And what's amazing is this display of, of the overwhelming power of Jesus to draw Paul to himself and transform this situation. Look, like what does this mean for you and I? If God can work in such a way in the most zealot of enemies of God... If he can work in that way, in such that way, and turn him from an enemy of God to a proclaimer of God, how could anyone else be so far from God's grace? I'm so thankful for how God continues to work in other people's lives and my own. It means that there's hope and that God is powerful enough to save. So what does that mean? Keep praying. Keep testifying. Keep pointing to Christ. And as you see in verse 15, it says, And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And with that voice, everything that Paul knew was turned upside down. Part of the act of repentance is recognizing that Jesus is Lord. 
you cannot, you have to say Jesus is Lord, and he has to be in your life as Jesus is Lord. Paul had been devoted to and raging against the church, his enemies, and these were the people of God that he was spending all of his energies destroying. And now there's an abrupt change in his life because he has now a new heart that enables him to believe. He has a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. And now he can says, Lord. And now Jesus comes in verses 16 to 17 and he says, I'm going to appoint you as a witness and a servant. And God chooses Paul. And he sends them to be people, to, be, to go to the people, his own people and the Gentiles, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. To open the eyes, as he says, as Jesus says, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And Jesus commissions Paul to tell others, people, about the forgiveness and inheritance. Forgiveness before a holy God comes through the work of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus saves, there is a leaving from one realm to the other. You're no longer the pig who keeps playing in the muck. You get out of that. You get nice and clean. A nice warm shower or some soap. In this case, it's the blood of Christ who washes you white as snow. Nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood. There's a transfer that comes because the forgiveness that comes with repentance and reconciliation of a God's people comes only through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's God's grace through the work of the Holy Spirit that enables individuals to repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Faith and repentance are seen as God-given responses to his call. And think about what is being said here. There has been a call from darkness and the power of Satan to God's light. John 1 verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What does that mean? It means that God's light has overcome Satan's darkness. Satan might be strong. Don't, don't underestimate who Satan is. But don't underestimate who your Savior is either. Even the darkness that is within us, all God's light overcomes. You may feel like you are under control of the power of Satan, but God offers defeat of the control of that power to all who repent and believe. This isn't about some sort of self-help junk. You know if you go to Indigo or... Yeah, go, let's go to Indigo. People still go to bookstores, right? You go to Indigo. You know the help, self, help, uh, self-help section is massive. All these people trying to fix themselves. You can't fix yourself. That's why there's so many books on it, because they keep trying. You know who can? Only the blood of Jesus Christ who washes away the sins of all those who put their trust in him. This happens when we repent, when we agree with God that we are sinners, when we renounce our sin and turn our back on our old way of life, and to believe, which means to put our full confidence in the person of Jesus as our substitute, whose death was enough to rescue me, a wretched sinner I am, from the depths of hell. Have you done that? 
because you can. You can repent and believe. This is what it means to be a Christian. And once you have done this, the first order of business is to get baptized because baptism is an outward symbol of an eternal change. It is a picture of having our sins washed away. At Nolwood, it's one of the first things we do. Followed by the second one, join a church that will walk with you and present you mature in Christ. There's a great book we have in our resource center. It's a yellow one. It's called Conversion, How God Creates a People by Michael Lawrence. If you're a super fast reader, you could probably have it done this week, this like afternoon. If you're like me, it'll take you a week. But it's a great book that kind of takes all of what Scripture says and how he, God creates a people for himself. But we see here in Paul's testimony what God has been doing and, and how Paul has become part of Christ's family. And what did God use to show him his need of a Savior? We see what Paul is now as his life is changed. God doesn't leave you in that realm of darkness and says, now you're mine. He takes you out of that realm of darkness and brings you into his realm of lightness and you become a person of light, not dark. He takes the pig and brings you... Hey, you ever watched Princess uh, the Willow movie? I was watching it the other day because I'm old-ish. <laughs> but this, this, the, the, by magic, they turn all these people into pigs. You know, we're pigs, wallowing around in our own muck. But God takes us out of that muck. He brings us into his kingdom of light, and he makes us into a new creation, a one that desires to live in light, who wants to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. But we see this right here, what Paul is like right now, he is different. He's been called into, he, he, he's been brought out of a kingdom of darkness and into a kingdom of light. And he wants to proclaim that to all the people. And in verse 19, we see how Paul truly been saved from unbelief and disobedience and faith. And he's been brought to faith and obedience. And I think this is the reality we often miss, is that regardless of whoever you are, everyone must repent and believe in Jesus and show their new, show their new relationship through obedience to him. Obedience isn't legalism. I can't, oh man, that drives me nuts. Why are you doing that? That's so legalistic. Well, I'm doing it because God's word tells me to do it. Well, that's legalism. No, it's called obedience. It's called faithfulness. I want to obey my Savior who saved me. I want to give him glory with every ounce of my being. And that's what Paul is doing. Because he's proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, he's going to take every opportunity to tell people about who God is and what it means to be faithful. As he touches upon who God is, what is your story? Can I challenge you to do something this week, over the next few weeks maybe? Maybe as you meet with other members or in small groups or your men's and women's groups, wherever it may be. Why not take some time this week and the next week to tell other people of what God has done in your life? Start with this. What God has done, what was your life like before? What did God use to grab hold of your life? What was it that God used to change you? And what is God doing in your life right now?
Because that's what Paul's testimony is. And as we get into the act and habit of doing that, it becomes a lot easier to go and tell other people about who God is. So Paul says, as he concludes his arguments, he says in verses 24 to 32, we see two different groups of people. Clearly, Festus has, wants nothing to do with who Jesus is because he calls Paul a babbler, someone who's crazy. But Paul has true and rational words. And this is a reminder for all of us that 2 Corinthians 2, verse 16, to the, one, a fra- the gospel is to one a fragrance from death to death. To others, it's a fragrance of life to life. Without God first opening the hearts of someone, the gospel will always seem crazy. But we see here Paul comes right to Agrippa and he looks him straight in the eyes and asks him this great question. And Agrippa, do you believe? Do you believe in this? Do you believe the whole, that from Genesis 2 all the way to the end of the Old Testament, the hope that points to Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again? And he says right there in verse 21, not to make you a Christian, but that I desire for you to be just like me. Everything that Paul is doing, everything that Paul is doing is simply to do this. His desire is that others would know Christ and be known by Christ just like him. His whole life is consumed by the gospel because he understands who he was and what God saved him from, so he wants to go and tell other people about that, all while resting that Jesus Christ is the one who can save. He wants other people to know the forgiveness of sins and the healings of brokenness that he knows. He wants other people to understand that there is a holy God and we have sinned against the holy God. And because of that sin, we deserve only hell. But by the grace of God, for some reason, he steps down from his throne to pay the price for my sin and for your sin so that everyone who repents and believes may have life. Jesus so radically changed Paul that he gave him a new heart No longer was he a persecutor, but a proclaimer of Jesus Christ. Paul's desire flows out of what God has done for him as he tells others about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so what, you may ask yourself. Just like Paul, if you're in Christ, the work of Jesus in our lives moves us from rebel to proclaimer. That is what our call is. Just like Paul, the work of Jesus in our lives moves us from rebel to proclaimer and desiring others to be just like us. I'm reminded of Romans 1, 16 to 17. It's a beautiful thing. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that the gospel has the power to save? Because if you believe it, you will proclaim it. And I'm not saying perfectly. And I'm not saying without fear and trembling because I hate talking to strangers. And I don't like getting outside of my house because it's comfortable. Off my couch because it's comfortable. 
but I want people to be just like me because I know if they're not just like me, there's only one place they go. I want them to be forgiven. I want them to be adopted. I want them to know that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior because the work of Jesus in my life moves me from rebel to proclaimer. Look, whoever you are, wherever you are, the gospel that you preach, the gospel you proclaim is able to save anyone. If you are in Christ, the testimony of what God has done in your life is saturated with the gospel. Maybe it's a family member or a friend or maybe the stranger in the street you talk to. From your enemies to the highest office in this country, the gospel has the power to save and Paul knows that so he proclaims it because he sees it in his own life. So here's the thing, you and I, and we're all guilty of this, can spend a whole lot of time worrying about what someone else thinks about us because they're going to make fun of us. We don't like being made fun of. I don't like being made fun of. They might reject us. They might beat us in an argument because I'm just not smart enough. I'm not quick enough. But here's the thing, that's already been guaranteed. There's always going to be someone smarter than you. There's always going to be someone smarter than you. There's always going to be someone who's quicker than you. There's always someone who's going to make fun of you. There's always someone who's going to reject the gospel, just like Festus. But you know what? You know what that should do? It should take away all the pressure, because it's already going to happen. So let's just do it. Let's go on and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The work of Jesus in our lives moves us from rebel to proclaimer. Let us continue to worship our awesome God together. Lord, we just thank you for the chance we have to make much of you, to worship you. And Lord, I pray that we would have a desire for others to be just like us. Um, Lord, I pray first off that we would live a life that is worthy of being an example. That we would be a people that seek after godliness. That we would be a people that encourage one another and present one another as mature in you. But Lord, I pray that we would want other people to be just like us, to be adopted as your children, people who don't deserve it, who have been saved by your amazing grace. May we see that we've been moved from rebels to proclaimers to bring glory to your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Nate, for bringing God's word to us this morning. I want you to stand with